Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to another edition of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. On this week's episode, we discuss the return of Zima, the 90s alcoholic staple. We'll also talk about Bob Evans and the relative success that their prepackaged food division is having after their spinoff from the restaurant division. And we'll talk about a study that details whether or not QSRs and fast casual restaurants might stand to lose traffic by using third-party delivery systems. We begin this episode, however, with talk of Blue Apron's IPO. Before we get to that, we should let you know that this episode of the Food Focus podcast is brought to you by Third Wave Water and ThirdWaveWater.com. If you're ready to start making better coffee at home today, check them out at thirdwavewater.com. Use the promo code FOCUS for 10% off your first order. It is a fantastic product, and we recommend checking it out. Now, Blue Apron's IPO obviously seeks to raise a lot of money, a significant amount, and the amount specifically was announced this week. We've known of their pending IPO now for a few weeks. The well-known meal delivery service has been largely credited to opening up a new way of getting food to homes in the United States. However, getting a look at their financials, you worry on that end and you worry also about increased competition in regards to their IPO. Absolutely. And just last week, Trent, we were talking about Kroger and their launch of an in-house meal kit. And we're going to talk about those details a little bit later as some local news outlets around the Cincinnati area have reported on both the price point and the configurations there. But many people also think Amazon will be doing something similar, especially after the acquisition of Whole Foods. They're talking about the logistics and the overall network that Amazon has throughout the United States with over a hundred fulfillment centers and this is one thing that blue apron is raising money for or at least they are rumored to be raising money for and so analysts have stated that this is rather good timing for blue aprons ipo for a number of reasons one they can raise that very essential cash before amazon lays out such plans to invade the space in order to get a stronger foothold in many of their markets and obviously the amazon whole foods is not a closed deal yet, but they're talking about later on in the summertime to get that cinched up. And then number two, reason number two to have this IPO right now is that longtime partners in the business will have an opportunity to cash out after the lockup period is up per the IPO's predetermination. And then number three, the IPO market is prime for some action as the company is bullish on the multi-billion dollar valuation that they've given, even though they've posted bigger sequential losses per their regulatory filings. Obviously, there haven't been a lot of IPOs on the market, Trent, and I think that's one reason that this is a good time for them to put sort of some feelers out there to gauge the market and then obviously raise up the necessary cash. But if you look at the potential terms in the filings thus far, you see that the company is targeting a $3 billion valuation 
This would, of course, classify the company as what a lot of people call a unicorn, a fairly new company with a valuation of $1 billion or more. They've been classified as a unicorn for over three years now. What is interesting about the valuation is that on the private market, they've recently gotten a $2 billion valuation, obviously a little bit less than the one they're trying to get through the IPO. And this was from CBI Insights, a firm that provides information about current private equity financing deals. And this is most interesting because they go back through historical data and try to gauge a company's valuation through the multiple rounds of funding they've had. So this means that they've actually had pre-funding rounds at around that $2 billion valuation. So for those current equity holders within the company, the $3 billion valuation is a very positive sign. However, if you take a step back, you see that the company is only going to issue about one-sixth of the outstanding shares to the public market. The company expects to see about $15 to $17 a share for that IPO price, although that price could go up if brokerages see the demand, which you would have to assume they will see some high demand for this IPO. A lot of people have been clamoring to get a piece of the action within this market segment, but the company manages to release 30 million shares, or at least that is what they're intending. If they manage to do that at that $15 to $17 price point, Trent, that means the company will be bringing in approximately $450 to $510 million from the IPO. And no matter how you slice it, that is a large sum of dollars. But the question here is, what do they plan to do with all that cash? You mentioned volume in terms of the share trading. I think it's interesting because Blue Apron is a company that has picked up a lot of steam, has good brand recognition among millennials. And when Snap released their IPO not that long ago, the stock trading service Robinhood, whose usership is mostly millennial, reported a pop in trading regarding Snap's IPO. And I think we might see the same effect on Blue Apron among millennials. But again, as Leighton mentioned, the question is, really what does the company want to do with the money that they're raising like most companies with a high debt burden and we'll talk about their debt burden in a second and also some very steep leveraging on the books management is looking to pay down some of their debt load which is certainly wise anytime you can pay down your debt load you reduce not only your interest payments in the short term but you reduce the amount that your debt leveraged in the long term it seems as though blue apron may have some higher interest debt just looking from the outside in, it wants to take off of the balance sheet. The company has had to raise multiple rounds of funding in order to effectively grow out their business, but even at that, still losing money year over year. Blue Apron, two years ago, raised $135 million in funding led by Fidelity Management as their distribution capabilities at that time, two years ago, started to run thin. This showed signs of desperation to some onlookers, analysts, and financing terms might have been a little bit more strict considering that a lot of people saw some desperation in Blue Apron as they tried to build out their distribution capabilities. CNBC smartly pointed out that distribution and distribution size is exactly what makes Amazon an enormous threat in the space. And if Blue Apron is having some difficulties in terms of building out their distribution network, and if that's what they want to spend part of this money on, Amazon has an existing distribution network that is enormous. Now, we should mention this is not a perishables distribution network, and those two things are entirely different. Amazon's fresh marketplace distribution network is 
far more slim than their traditional distribution network. Let's get back to the Blue Apron financials. Overall, they don't look all that great. For the fiscal year ending 2014, the company posted a $30 million loss, which is not uncommon for a startup. But the problem is the chasm between loss and profit is getting larger and larger. In 2015, that loss was $46 million, and most recently in 2016 for the entire year, a $54 million loss. Now, the reason we get these financials is for the purpose of the IPO, as they have to release the recent year's financials before people begin to snatch up the stock. For the three months ending March 31st of this year, the company is already $52 million in the hole. So January 1st through March 31st of 2017, you're looking at a $52 million loss. They could potentially get some of this back if they pick up some momentum over the latter nine months of the year, but still losing $52 million in a quarter for a relatively new business should not be looked at as a strong sign. At that rate, if they were to lose money at the same consistent rate as the first three months of this year, the additional cash raised through the IPO could have a run-through rate of a little over two years, which is, again, not a good thing since they're planning on raising nearly a half billion dollars. It looks as though also that nearly one-third of the IPO cash proceeds will be used for that current debt we've already talked about. The proposed amount is $125 million, which is still less than their $135 million round that they accrued in 2015. The rest of their proceeds will be used for their growth and the existing business per the regulatory statements. Despite statements regarding competition and their financial status, though, Blue Apron continues to build up a user base, and that user base might be the only driving force behind this IPO, as a lot of millennials, it's been said, tend to prefer to buy stock on products they enjoy using themselves. Not only did Blue Apron provide a lot of financial data in their IPO regulatory filing, but they also listed the number of annual orders that they've taken in, and that has grown to around $4.3 million annually from 841000 just in 2015. So they definitely have been trying to accrue a larger consumer base, and you see that really has been effective growing out not only their brand, but their presence in a multitude of markets throughout the United States. And the number of subscribers has grown to over 1 million from 213,000 in that same time frame. The company touts 159 million meals made overall, and this is again per the regulatory filing. And like most things tied to membership models, it may be a little bit difficult to steal those current users away off of a slightly lower price point. And by this, we mean competition coming in and trying to replicate what Blue Apron has laid out currently. And the company has two plans based around families of two or families of four. And variations of the plans cause the average meal to fluctuate between around $8.95 and $10 per meal. But maybe the people would switch if the companies could charge less that are coming into the space. According to that local news outlet that I had mentioned earlier, based out of Ohio, Kroger's Meal Kits, the prep and paired selections start at around $14 and are for two people. According to that same news source, there are a total of four locations that have been piloting those meals with over a half dozen meal variations. And this is obviously the differentiator for Blue Apron is if you listen to some of their advertisements, they try to advertise all the different selections they have 
every week, every month. They're always trying to innovate and have something new for their core customer. But to be honest, you really have to think, what is Blue Apron's moat? Warren Buffett coined the term, but really this is an important aspect to look into to see their competitive differentiation here. And if you look at what makes them distinctive in the space with Blue Apron so far, you see that the constant meal change is one thing, but then also the brand. They built up a strong brand and they have a lot of positive response. Just if you go to the app store, you see a lot of positive reviews, a lot of accessibility from their app, not a lot of problems there. But this could be easily duplicated with a lot of cash from a larger company who has the cash on the balance sheet. In addition, larger companies like Amazon, Kroger, and Walmart could, in essence, take these short-term losses and confirm to the customer that they have cheaper prices and have a better pricing posture, and they could survive a little bit of loss in that short term. And so I think this is a big problem for them because... Obviously, when considering the moat, you have to look at the competitive advantage and see if it's sustaining, if that competitive advantage can be held for the long term. And Blue Apron's model arguably cannot survive a pricing war. Great points all there. And I think one final point to add is, in fact, in distribution, I think the biggest competitors in this space to Blue Apron, not Amazon, as people might think, but instead are Kroger and Walmart, two companies that have already built out their perishable distribution platforms that already have in-house kitchens in the majority of their stores. And anytime you seek to add value to vegetables by, say, cutting them up, that is a big markup for the company. So I'm not even sure that Kroger and Walmart would have to take a loss on those terms if you go into one of those stores and get say a cup of chopped onion that will be substantially more expensive as much as three times more expensive in fact than just buying the onion off the shelf so they're able to cobble together these meal deals the key for those two businesses though will be innovation and staying on trend which is something blue apron along with other meal delivery platforms, have the capability to do. But I think what could potentially do Blue Apron in, at least in the markets that have Kroger's and Walmart's, if they can figure out a way to unlock delivery platforms to deliver those meals to houses, I think Blue Apron's going to have a very tough time to compete. Imagine Kroger using either their ClickList program or a third-party delivery service such as Shipped to deliver those meals out to people for a $14 or $15 price point. There aren't too many people that would actually select Blue Apron above and beyond Kroger if they're having to spend an additional $5 to $10 per meal. We move on to our one and only earnings call for this edition of the podcast. Bob Evans, prepackaged food division, released their first earnings call as a separate entity aside from the restaurant division, which they sold off. And Trent, they prefaced with that on the earnings call and official press release through the company's website. The company said they completed the sale of Bob Evans Restaurants to Golden Gate Capital. As a result, the results of the operations of Bob Evans Restaurants have been reported as discontinued operations and all financial statement items for the current and prior periods reflect BER as a discontinued business. So, With that aside, you can see that the overall shareholder activism for the company has led the company in a certain direction, one that really has given them positive results in this latest quarter. And for this latest quarter, it was actually their fourth fiscal quarter, 
2017. So we'll talk a little bit about Outlook later. That will be for fiscal 2018. Per the report, shares of Bob Evans Farms, ticker BOBE, rose about 4% in pre-market trading last Thursday on mostly positive news and that outlook. Results came in and total sales came in at around $99.9 million, an increase of 4.9% from the 13-week comparable fiscal 2016 period. And you see that this actually missed Wall Street expectations right around $5.1 million. Non-GAAP net income for the company came in at $0.61 cents per diluted share, an increase of 27% from the $0.48 cents in the prior year. Analysts were expecting adjusted net income of around $0.48 cents per share. So, Trent, they beat on net income, however, failed expectations on top-line revenue. That top-line revenue was a tricky number to anticipate, though, this quarter because of all the happenings within the company with the restaurant sell-off, an increased push for retail partnerships, and a recently announced acquisition that actually took place during the quarter. So with all of those numbers, it was hard to anticipate exactly what numbers were going to be coming in. The good news, however, is their cash position is extremely strong, and that net income number did beat those analyst expectations from Wall Street. Overall, the company seems primed for success for the rest of the calendar year due in large part to the restaurant sell-off proceeds. And if we dig further into the company's performance, we see that in terms of products getting to market, they are expanding nicely. As it relates to those products, fourth quarter retail, what they call side dish and sausage pounds sold, increased 11.5% and 9.2% respectively when compared to the prior year's period. And also they have a food service division that not a lot of people talk about. That volume increased 5.7% also on that comparison basis. And the total pounds sold for the company in all through all of their production facilities increased 7% for the company quarter over quarter. And one might assume that these comps will be a little bit hard to beat over the course of the next year, Trent, but they are putting themselves in a position to best even the most robust numbers that they've posted here. In the first story, we talked about a company in Blue Apron that was trying to use an IPO to raise additional funds to build out distribution platforms and the like. And here with Bob Evans, their prepackaged food division was able to use money from actually the sell-off of their restaurant division to do the same thing. And we see the proof kind of borne out in their fourth quarter results. Now, the prepackaged food division at Bob Evans has always been strong. They had seen softness in the restaurant division but these numbers do more than just build on the prior numbers for their prepackaged food division strong financial results here with the production output even though price per pound decreased 2.3 percent and that's a function again of overall food deflation but the good news is for Bob Evans, we mentioned the strong financial results. They're also seeing lower prices on input costs as well. So that is a slight positive, even though the price they were able to charge per pound of food at their prepackaged food division did go down during this last quarter over the prior year, which is, again, to be expected. 
The sale of their restaurant division and other activities such as two sale leasebacks with two production facilities this year has put the company in great financial position, at least in the short term. Sale leasebacks we've talked about from time to time on the podcast, but basically it's a situation where companies such as Bob Evans will sell off a facility to a landlord and then lease that facility back from the landlord in doing so, unlocking real estate to turn into short-term cash, but long-term, it may indeed hinder the company, especially if they lease that building for a long period of time. This sale leaseback is basically the only thing we question regarding the machinations of Bob Evans as it pertains to long-term liquidity, simply because these factories are tremendously specialized. We understand doing it with maybe an emptier warehouse and that type of thing, but Bob Evans and what they do with prepackaged foods, they are very specialized, so they're likely to be renting out these facilities for a long period of time. Still, you understand if you've got to unlock capital in the short term, sometimes this is a better deal, especially if you can sign a long-term lease that at least semi-locks in your rate over that long term. Management chose to do three different things with the money that we've talked about them unlocking, not only from the sale of their restaurant division, but also these sale leasebacks. First thing, they paid off debt. At the end of the last quarter, they had $339 million in debt. Now they have just $2.7 million in debt, which is a relative pittance for such a large company. Second, they're giving back to shareholders of record on May 30th, paying out a one-time dividend of $7.50 a share, which is fairly substantial, and they actually paid that dividend last Friday, so it was removed from their books and into shareholders' accounts last Friday. And finally, they made what we believe is a smart acquisition of Pineland Farms Potato Company. Let's take a look at that very quickly. Pineland Farms has only, as you could probably guess by the title, potato products. The company is based in Maine, out of the northeastern United States. It's a very long history in that region, but they seem to be an excellent fit for Bob Evans because they not only offer prepackaged side dishes in the form of flavored mashed potatoes, which is something, of course, that Bob Evans also specialized in, but they have an enormous food service division. Leighton referenced the Bob Evans food service division earlier and how that doesn't get as much airplay as some of the other things that they do. The food service division at Pineland Farms has diced potatoes and things like mashed potato kits for companies who might then turn around and sell the mashed potatoes, say, at a deli or in a restaurant. Not only is Bob Evans growing through acquisition, but they are growing their plant capacity in areas where they feel as though they have room to grow market share. And I think this is the thing that Personally, I am the most bullish on when it comes to Bob Evans as they're able to increase their production capacity. We see that there is existing demand for their product. And this is something that they've mentioned in the past. Over the past couple of years, they've mentioned the fact that they have trouble keeping up with the demand on their prepackaged foods. And now that they have a little bit of liquid income, now that they've freed up some cash and reduced their interest payments, they're able to pour this extra money into creating not only great distribution networks, but also enormous production facilities and unlocking extra space in existing production facilities. And I think this is what gives us the most optimistic outlook for their prepackaged foods division, even though we weren't necessarily 100% on board with the sell-off of the restaurant division. Yeah, both the CEO and CFO and comments made throughout their conference call last week seemed really positive on the outlook for the company. And 
if you look deeper into some of the segments that they sell, you see an increased presence in some core sausage markets. And this is what they are talking about when they're talking about trying to grow as far as plant capacity is concerned is they want to address these areas that they think is a big market opportunity for the company. And overall, this could help with the pricing wars that you see throughout the industry in the prepackaged food areas. The company knows their customer. And I think right now, anytime you're seeing citations of around 29 to 30% market share in a particular category, these are very strong numbers for a company that is just now getting their bearings. And like you mentioned, Trent, have a lot less debt on the books, and they're really trying to form out a company that is very liquid and can be agile for the future customer. And speaking of outlook for the company, they have actually just beat their full-year earnings per share guidance for all of fiscal 2017. But management seems somewhat tentative for fiscal 2018, but that is not to say that the numbers they laid out were at all not healthy. Chief Administrative and Chief Financial Officer Mark Hood said, we are initiating fiscal 2018 gap diluted earnings per share guidance in the range of $2.06 per share to $2.24 per share. Additionally, we are providing fiscal 2018 guidance ranges for both net sales and EBITDA, and this is consistent with their previous guidance. This guidance is coming in around $470 million and $105 million, respectively. And Trent, this was the bad part for the company as this actually missed the expectations of analysts coming into that full year number for fiscal 2018. Both earnings per share and net sales were slightly below these analyst expectations as the fact set consensus estimates for sales was around $471.3 million and the earnings per share called for around $2.43 per share. So despite being up in pre-market trading, I believe these outlook figures is really what did the company in as shares ended up falling over 4%, around 4.3% in the coming week. They've been down a little bit this week. Shares fell to around $68 per share, but have held around $69 per share throughout trading this week. That is not to say the company has been trading at a very poor valuation. They've actually been trading at a very high valuation, over 70 times earnings. And despite selling off a large part of its business, a lot of people are optimistic for the company. Shares of the company are up almost 100% since June of 2016. This episode of the Food Focus Podcast is brought to you by Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. Do you ever wonder why the coffee you make at home never quite tastes as good at the coffee you buy at a coffee shop? I'm talking like a legitimate coffee shop in your neighborhood. Well, here's the secret. Coffee shops, especially the good ones, spend thousands of dollars to make the perfect water for making coffee. I can tell you from past experience, it's exactly what they do. And now for as little as 10 cents per cup, you can duplicate that magic at home. Third Wave Water does, in fact, have a patent-pending formula of minerals that when added to a gallon of distilled water, makes for what they call coffee brewing magic. Recently at the U.S. Brewers' Cup Championship, both the first and second place finishers brewed their coffee with Third Wave Water. Check out their website at thirdwavewater.com and use the promo code FOCUS, F-O-C-U-S, for 10% off your first order. Go do that now. You'll be amazed at the price point and the difference it makes in your coffee. That's Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. 
We move on to the beverage industry now as honestly, this could be one of the lead stories in the podcast. It's garnering a lot of headlines this week throughout the beverage industry as the alcoholic sparkling beverage Zima is returning, at least for a short time. We've seen commercials for the Zima comeback in recent days as Molson Coors begins to roll out the one-time grocery and liquor store staple. This has required a strong push in terms of marketing, but also media, even us, may be helping out with the brand that was popularized with a variety of messages in the 90s. Parent company Miller Coors actually made a 60-second spot that will run on social media channels, including Facebook Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Before we look at Zima returning to the marketplace late, and I think it's only fair that we give our listeners, especially those that may not be familiar with Zima as a product, a little bit of historical background. Yeah, and before I do that, you had smartly recommended that this go in either the first or second place throughout these stories. And I think that really is fitting because this has garnered a lot of social media attention due in part to the marketing efforts by the parent company. But if you go back and look through the history, it is really fascinating because here you have a brand that really came to prominence quite quickly, but then fizzled off not that long ago. The Zima brand was actually first tested in 1991 and brought to the mass market in 1993 after being tested in approximately three to four pilot markets throughout the West Coast. The drink almost had a cult-like following at the time, but was often dismissed as something less than what people called a real beer. Though it really isn't a beer by definition, more of what people would call today a cooler or more of what they would call an alco-pop. And to me, it's a little bit sad that it had such negativity surrounding the name, especially now that you see so many other brands trying to have a soda-flavored brew, such as brands like Not Your Father's Root Beer or Best Damn Cherry Cola. You see a lot of these really coming to market, these flavorful selections. And you go to the liquor store now, Trend, and you see a lot of these coming onto the store shelves. And you really have to wonder if this Zima comeback could be sustained for the longer term. So we go back and initially we see that Coors spent around $50 million marketing Zima in its first year alone, persuading nearly half of American alcohol drinkers to try it. The beverage quickly became more appealing to women and the company really had a problem getting it widespread sustained adoption throughout the U.S. markets. In 1995, marketing Zima Gold came to light as the amber-colored beverage that promised a taste of bourbon was trying to appeal to the more male consumer. This drink sales were not strong and the drink was actually taking off the shelves and stopped distribution by around 1997. Zima stopped selling in 2008. So Trent, not that long ago, about nine years ago in the U.S., distribution stopped. But it actually has remained a staple overseas in some markets. Japan, as a matter of fact, still offers the beverage. And Miller Coors, the U.S. distributor here, has a number of breweries and they've negotiated for the Zima naming rights and distribution throughout the U.S. for this limited time release. And as a quick background note, as we reported last October 11th of 2016, SAB Miller sold its stake in Miller Coors for around $12 billion after the company was acquired by Anheuser-Busch InBev, making Molson Coors the new 100% owner of Miller Coors. Miller Coors is, again, the U.S. operating division for the company in essence. And Trent, 
That is the company that is going to be distributing Zima and has been really pushing the marketing for this limited time rollout. And we should mention it is limited time. We'll get to that aspect in just a moment. Now, when it was first announced, this took place back in February, but a lot of people glossed over it. And we were kind of wondering if it was like the clear Pepsi, for example, that would only be partially rolled out, but not fully rolled out. However, this month, Chicago-based Miller Coors, as Leighton mentioned, did make public the release of malt-based Zima to the U.S., and this is a relatively full-scale release, so in multiple distribution networks throughout the United States. It's not just limited to one region as the Crystal Pepsi was. In the initial teaser statement, Miller Coors said, if you're one of the zillion fans who has missed Zima, the answer should be clear. Again, this was back in February, and then they released a Twitter message recently indicating that Zima is back on June 13th. Later on, another statement was made to clear up some things about the demand, and the statement read, and I quote, tons of people have been asking for Zima to make a comeback, and this summer seemed like the perfect time. Whether you remember it or not, this summer is your only chance to taste the it drink of the 90s. And this quote comes via Tristan Moline, who is a senior marketing manager of innovation at Miller Coors. So there's a lot of social media buzz about this product. And in terms of the product itself, the beverage will keep the popular label and the same taste configuration that includes a kind of a fizzy citrus flavor. Think of it a little bit like an alcoholic 7-Up or an alcoholic Sprite. It will be sold in a vintage six-pack, so only in six-packs. And it has been distributed, again, throughout the U.S. to various liquor and grocery stores. Now, the bad news, if you're a fan of Zima, is that the sales of Zima will only take place up through Labor Day, which is Monday, September 4th this year. And you have to wonder, certainly, at least as far as Molson Coors is concerned, you have to wonder about the economics of this limited time release. Companies oftentimes have to change tooling on the distribution lines, plan for a shutdown, of course, ahead of time in the production run, even if sales beat the highest of expectations. So this could cause somewhat of a Zima shortage in certain markets as you go through. In this regard, it's similar to seasonal offerings in the beer space, but at the same time, you've got a different bottle design and an entirely different product. It is far more easy for a beer brewer and distributor to be able to market a seasonal offering there than it is to completely change a production line for a one-off product like Zima. For Zima, not just the label and the beverage itself are different from other offerings, but we mentioned the glass bottle. It's got straight lines below the neck that could make things a little bit different in terms of a production capacity. But the reason I question this limited time offering, I don't question that they've brought it back is because it comes at a time when non-beer alcoholic drinks are surging, and you always risk overstaying your welcome. That's one of the reasons why restaurants, QSRs, and beverage companies all do limited-time offers. And it makes sense in the beer industry. You don't want to drink a winter warmer beer that's 8% alcohol by volume when it's 95 degrees outside. But Zima is re-entering the marketplaces at a time when, as Leighton mentioned, these Alco Pops are becoming more popular, but also lighter non-beer alcoholic drinks are beginning to peak in popularity. Brands like Mike's manufactured Mike's Hard Lemonade and that brand extension had some success over the last couple of decades. Jack Daniels also was able to tap into this, has some success selling these type of drinks in four packs. These 
type of drinks, these Alco Pops, if you want to call them that, these coolers, these drinks that have about 5% alcohol by volume, have a little bit of carbonation in them, are really surging, and they own a significant amount of market share. And This kind of started, if you want to track it back, about seven to eight years ago, we mentioned Mike's always selling in liquor stores. It always had a decent following. But about seven to eight years ago, you started to see more inclusion of hard cider as brands like Angry Orchard got picked up for nationwide distribution. After hard cider, that led, of course, to the hard root beer. Leighton talked about hard ginger beer or ginger ale in certain circumstances. And now hard soda is extraordinarily popular. Even recently, Smirnoff released an alcoholic version of what looks to be Powerade, essentially. In terms of hard soda, Henry's in particular has seen a rapid brand climb over the last two years for their line of hard sodas. Henry's has now gone on to release a hard sparkling water, and in fact, Boston Beer Company, the maker of Sam Adams, has actually gotten in on the craze as well with their line of truly spiked sparkling water. Part of the reason for this proliferation of these type of products in the marketplace is that most of these products are gluten-free, so they meet requirements of people that are eating or drinking a gluten-free diet or people that have celiac disease or Crohn's disease. Additionally, some, like Truly, for example, market themselves as lower calorie, under 100 calories for an alcoholic drink that still has about 5% ABV. And these are all part of the reasons market share for these type of drinks has never been greater. And I kind of wonder why Miller Coors doesn't leverage the existing brand recognition of Zima, which we know to be strong among people that came of drinking age in the 90s and also strong among millennials who are willing to try something that was popular in the 90s. Why not use this brand recognition to stake a claim to a piece of the market share that has never been larger in the United States? I don't believe that having a limited time offer for just a couple of months in this circumstance is a good concept. Same type of thing we talked about with Crystal Pepsi. I think you can run it a little bit further because these drinks are so popular at this point and because of Zima's unique brand recognition that not a lot of other brands have. And Leighton, I know we were talking before the podcast about other potential brand comebacks we could see this year, and that's honestly pretty difficult to say. A lot of brands in the beverage industry have already been rehashed and I look towards other 90s brands. You know, there are a bunch of 90s brands that float out there. A few people will note Red Dog Beer, for example, which was brewed by Miller Brewing Company. I see this potentially as something that could actually come back on a fuller scale, despite the fact that you see fewer and fewer adjunct lagers sold in the U.S. Right now, the availability is very slim for it, and I feel like if you revisit an advertising campaign for that, revisit an advertising campaign for perhaps something else that was advertised heavily maybe 10 or 15 years ago like Red Stripe. It's not necessarily a technical comeback, but I think if you pour some advertising, some brand recognition, three brands, Red Dog, Red Stripe, and then also Foster's, which is you know supposedly out of Australia, I think those brands could make a small comeback, but I don't think that they're going to have quite the impact as a comeback from Zima. Well, we end this edition of the podcast with a story that came out of Sense360 that finds that third-party delivery may not actually cannibalize store traffic for fast, casual, and QSR change throughout the United States. Analysts had been wondering if delivery with Uber Eats and other similar platforms would lessen the amount of foot traffic that were coming into stores such as McDonald's and Arby's and the like. 
If QSR see a drop in foot traffic, in theory, this would cause less of an impulse buy and then also less typical add-on items when seen ordering at a physical counter. And impulse buys here could be seen as maybe a value menu dessert or an add-on item being a drink, which obviously, and we've talked about this time and time again, carry higher margins than the average gross margin throughout the restaurant. According to this Sense360 report, QSRs are actually in luck. For the study, the data company tracked orders from 21 million full-service and quick-service restaurant visits, and from June of 2016 through April of 2017 is when users were tracked, and they were tracking using mobile sensor technology that was actually anonymous, and the study looked at visitor frequency before and after downloading food delivery apps. So for instance, you would download the Uber Eats app and then track that user to see if they actually went into the physical locations more or less than they did before, basically trying to see if they utilize the app or do they not. In addition to the others mentioned, obviously Grubhub and Postmates were also looked at, and these are the more commonly used apps, but Uber Eats has been notable for us, Trent, because they first formed a partnership with Florida locations, but then they've also partnered with locations throughout Los Angeles, California, and in Phoenix, Arizona, having 300 in LA and 144 in Phoenix to be exact, and they now have partnered with over 1,000 locations as of May 17th of this year. So this is a very relevant study for what we talk about because you're talking about QSRs and FSRs that are trying to increase traffic or increase top-line revenue any way they can. And a lot of management has seen that by adding any type of new ordering system, whether it be with the mobile app or through these third-party delivery apps, you see that they're trying to boost revenue and sustain their business for the long term. And after having mulled through the data, the conclusion was extremely clear for the researchers and that was, in the end, they said there was zero evidence of a trending shift towards less in-store visitation with those who have downloaded the app. And in a statement, Trent, it is very interesting, as the CEO and founder of Sense360 said, with delivery among the most watched business opportunities in the restaurant industry today, our findings tell an interesting story of both who delivery app users are and that downloading such apps did not impact their in-store restaurant visit behaviors and frequency. So they seem extremely bullish on the idea that really there is no change from when they downloaded the app to when they didn't even have the app. And I think a lot of this has to do with the demographics. If you dig a little bit deeper into the data and see who these users are, it may make a little bit more sense as to how this was the case. I think a lot of it had to do with geographical evidence. You look at the geography of this study, where certain people were that were clustered that were using these programs. And honestly, some people where there is less traffic and less public transportation usage, they're a little bit more independent in those areas of the country, but more people will adopt and use the apps this study suggests in more densely populated areas, New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, all mentioned here, as well as the idea of lesser car ownership. More people living in these cities are willing to give up their cars, use either public transit or a third-party ride service. Many have coined the term, in fact, Uber Society to describe this phenomenon. But in all, people with the delivery apps installed go to the physical locations 
only 5% less. So it's a small drop off. I would argue that this is not necessarily alarming, but it is a little bit of a difference in terms of reducing your brick-and-mortar traffic if you are a QSR. Besides geography, there were some excellent digs into users' income dynamics. Those with higher incomes go to commoditized QSRs like a McDonald's a bit less, but those in demographic sections with higher incomes are the same people who would typically install some innovative and time-saving apps as well. However, data suggests that wealthier individuals go to FSRs and grocery stores and fast casual restaurants you can throw in there to get their food more often than not. So ultimately, the installation of these apps isn't necessarily going to bolster QSR traffic, nor is it going to leak away from QSR traffic. In the end, the larger idea that this study discussed is that the companies that are promoting these apps trying to get additional customers, not necessarily their regular customers. They're trying to reach into those sections of demographics where you've got higher income earners, and that's what really these QSRs are after. They're not necessarily after making things more convenient for their traditional customer who apparently still either prefers or chooses to go to the independent stores. Now, this is quite contrary to the idea that McDonald's and so many others have put out over the last couple of years, declaring that they need to meet their customers where they are and alluding to the idea that having a great mobile platform and delivery options in every market leads to great brand loyalty. And I think one of the more interesting things of late was the reference of Del Taco's new CEO to third-party delivery platforms or even internal delivery platforms where he mentioned part of the reason they haven't instituted it yet is they want a fuller idea of exactly who they would be serving and why they would be rolling out this platform. And when you look at a company like Del Taco, that impulse buy is strong with their value menu that they have, that barbell menu that we've talked about. So the ability for customers to add on, as Leighton mentioned, a dessert or maybe a small taco to an otherwise large meal, that impulse is going to be greater there potentially than on a delivery app. But as they mentioned, they're still working on app-based ordering and ahead-of-time ordering. That particular process was not studied by this particular look into dynamics of delivery platforms. Leighton, though, ultimately brand loyalty is a lot deeper than just making sure you have a third-party delivery service. Yeah, and this really all has me thinking about the last earnings call with McDonald's talking about brand loyalty as it relates to in-store kiosks, basically saying if it's easier for the customer to hurry up and get their order in, they're going to be more devoted to the company. But it seems as though maybe perhaps the customers are loyal for the exact reason we have always known them to be. And this really relates back to the idea of franchising to begin with, and that if you have a consistent product that's fresh and you can easily access it, I think that is really what creates loyalty within the QSR space not these third-party delivery programs. And like with grocery retailer, as we have talked about in the past with regards to Walmart's curbside pickup programs and Kroger's ClickList and Express Lane services that we talked about this last week, there will always be a core consumer base that prefers to go in the store when choosing their meals. And with the grocery space, we talked about the fresh meats and produce, obviously there, but 
obviously, I think there's a certain section of society that wants to go into these locations, see it be made, especially in the fast casual space, pick it up, either eat in store or go home with it. And I think delivery is something that has often been sequestered towards the pizza space. Pizza obviously has been long delivered and Domino's has had a great platform there with their mobile delivery and online interface. But perhaps something like a Five Guys burger chain is best picked up at the physical location. Not a lot of people, aside from those bigger metropolitan locations that you mentioned, Trent, like New York City, San Francisco, L.A., those locations really do require some type of service like this. But I think the looking at the traffic in other smaller markets or slower markets, you're going to see a lot of independence. You're going to see a lot of people not really signing up for these types of things. And not to mention there's an additional fee typically when you use an Uber Eats platform. So not only are you paying for the cost of the food, you're paying sort of a surcharge to have that food delivered. And I think if you have a capability, if it's fairly easy for you to end up driving to the restaurant, you're not going to use these third-party programs or even these in-house programs that some of these QSRs are rolling out. So even if adoption is just being sluggish, we see that the 5% usage that is indicated here, there's also the idea that FSRs will have a cap on the amount of people that will go in order to go or have food delivered. You see a lot of FSRs really as their key differentiator. They want to showcase the in-house experience and you see restaurants and restaurant concepts like Longhorn Steakhouse, Texas Roadhouse, and Cheddar's where it's not just the matter of the heightened food quality and freshness, but the overall atmosphere inside of these locations. And obviously, Texas Roadhouse really sticks out to me as they've popularized the line dancing. And this is something that Texas Roadhouse is really bullish on. You see, even to this day, Texas Roadhouse lists seven reasons to love the line dancing on their website. So a lot of people do not like that distraction, but there is something to be said for these full-service restaurants where they're always going to have some of their core consumer base coming into the restaurants and enjoying the dining out process, enjoying the fact that they are actually getting waited on. And I think there is something to be said for that. Now, as with the QSRs, you are seeing what is interesting to both you and I, very slow adoption. And I think that is just a matter of time. I think that in time, as these platforms become more competitive and those fees come down, you will see a lot more people feel more comfortable with having their fast food delivered. But Overall, I think this is a very interesting dynamic, and I'm glad we covered this story. And just as a last bit of news, this actually just came out about 45 minutes before we started, Trent. But Travis Kalanick, the former CEO of Uber, just resigned. So I am curious to see what direction that company goes into because they're actually more than just a ride-sharing service. They're obviously a delivery platform, but they also have been experimenting with freight delivery as well. Well, we've reached the final segment of the Food Focus podcast where each Leighton and I tell you about an item that's new to the world of food or at least new to us that we tried in the last week. We begin with Leighton. So I tried another treat from ThriveMarket.com. And the reason I went there is because they have a lot of items on sale and my sweet tooth was really hindering me this week. And I chose to buy the dark chocolate peanut butter cups by a company called Unreal. And this is sort of a theme that has been playing on through the last several weeks for me, Trent, in that I've been looking at companies that sell 
uh, very familiar items. And here we see peanut butter cups. I was a huge fan growing up of the Reese's peanut butter cup. And you see here, they're really prideful on the ingredients and how transparent they are. You see that they're all verified non-GMO. They're free of gluten, soy, and dairy. And you see that they're all actually vegan as well with this particular brand. And as for the package, it was around $4.50 for around eight peanut butter cups. And the price point struck me as being cheap initially, Trent, especially the quality of ingredients that Unreal has here. But overall, you see that just having eight peanut butter cups, I was able to destroy a whole bag of these in a matter of about 20 minutes. And then if you look and compare to a conventional peanut butter cup, you're saying that the ingredients and the nutrition facts are actually quite similar in that the total grams of fat are around six per a single peanut butter cup, 80 calories per that single peanut butter cup. So again, I had about eight times that because I, I ate the entire bag. But overall, this brand really does pride themselves on not having partially hydrogenated oils, high fructose corn syrup, artificial flavors, and the list goes on and on from those conventional candy companies that really have slowly started to take these artificial ingredients out of their products. But Overall, I would say it is a buy as it is a very delicious item. But again, that price point you have to be wary of because it's about 50 cents per chocolate peanut butter cup. Well, those that know me well know that I, I do enjoy gardening. I've got a quite extensive vegetable garden space at my house. This year happens to be a banner year for snow peas. I didn't plant very many snow pea plants. I actually used them kind of as a cover crop, but I ended up with Several dozen pounds of snow peas have been trying to give them away as much as possible, but I've been stuck with still about 20 or 30 pounds to have to consume by myself before they go bad. And what I ended up doing was seeking out some hummus with which to eat these snow peas. And I found what could be my new favorite hummus. This is from Hope Foods. And this is Thai coconut curry hummus. I tried it because I love Thai curry. In this case, they use an organic yellow curry powder as well as some dried coconut and some other spices as well as jalapenos to give it a little bit of a zing. And I have to tell you, it is almost exactly like a Thai yellow curry, only in hummus form with the snow peas. It is fantastically delicious. This product, well worth it. I think I paid around $5. It is organic. I paid $5 for a 15-ounce container of it, so I feel like I got a good deal on that end of it, but it has helped me go through so many more snow peas than I otherwise would have. And perhaps what I like most about it, in many cases with hummus, you have a small serving size that is potentially just enough for you know a few chips or a few vegetables. In this case, you know, a small serving size, 28 grams, it's 45 calories per serving, but it is so flavorful that a little bit of the hummus goes a long way, so you don't have to stack up massive mounds of hummus in order to get that flavor punch. So again, that's from Hope Foods Thai Coconut Curry. Absolutely fantastic, and I do recommend it to all of our listeners out there. Despite the fact that they didn't pay me to say any of that, it's just an authentically very, very good hummus. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Food Focus podcast. Make sure and subscribe to us on Twitter at The Food Focus. Also, check us out on Podbean, where now The Food Focus is hosted. It would be podbean.com. Simply search 
Food Focus. We'll be back later this week with a special edition of the Retail Focus as we have an interview with Sarah Jaffe, who's a national labor reporter for a number of media outlets. She's got a new story in the news this week, more specifically on Racked.com, detailing the current state of retail labor. So check it out for that interview. We'll also have four fantastic retail news stories for you later this week. Until then, for Late and I'm Trent, so long. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.